0: The people are all pale as mushrooms, blending in with the ashen cityscapes, sterile white rooms, and drab, half-empty restaurants. Stuck in meticulously composed dioramas, they enact miniature comedies and tragedies, sometimes it's hard to say which, filled with deadpan humor and haunting bleakness. We could only be in a Roy Anderson movie.
1: Imogen Sara Smith wrote these words about Anderson's latest, About Endlessness, which graced the cover of Film Comment's May-June 2020 issue. The global pandemic was just starting to take hold back then, and Anderson's work seemed to offer an uncannily apt vision of life in 2020.
0: With About Endlessness finally opening in theaters this week, we welcomed Imogen and another longtime Film Comment contributor, Jonathan Romney for a conversation about the film and its place in Anderson's utterly distinctive filmography.
1: We hope you enjoy the conversation. And don't forget to sign up for the Film Comment Letter, which launches on May 6th. It's a free digital newsletter that delivers original writing by Film Comment contributors directly to your inbox every Thursday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com and receive a free digital download of a Film Comment back issue of your choice.
0: Very excited today to have two writers whose work um, we've been very proud to publish many times in film comment, and whose work elsewhere is also remarkable and worth seeking out. Um, We have uh, Jonathan. Do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Uh, Yes, I'm Jonathan Romney, and I'm a film critic uh, living and working
0: in London. And Imogen?
3: I'm Imogen Sarah-Smith. I'm a film critic and historian living and working in New York City. I'm so glad
1: to have Imogen and Jonathan on today. As Clint, you said, they're film comment veterans. I feel very glad to have you both here. And apparently this is the first time that you both have been together on a podcast. So it feels like a special all-star lineup for sure. Um, I don't know, how are you guys doing? I mean, wherever you are, well, tell us where you are and just how's, how's movies doing where you are right now?
3: Imogen? I am in Queens, New York. Um, I have not been to a movie theater since the first half of March, 2020. So it's been a year of small screens and a lot of the Criterion channel and some other streaming services and watching things on my laptop. And I definitely feel disconnected and like I've drifted away and really miss the community of people that I had in New York and miss seeing people in lobbies and, you know, seeing people at film festivals. I miss traveling to see films. So, but of course, I also have been very lucky. I've been able to continue working from home. I'm safe and healthy, so really can't complain. And Jonathan, what's the dispatch from London?
2: Well, strangely, actually, for the first time in my life, I started keeping a list of films I'd seen because I realised that last year I had seen so much and I could barely remember what I'd been watching. And I realised that, you know, I just don't retain films the same way if they're on the small screen, whereas the films I actually saw last year live, you know, someone said to me recently, well, we remember the films we saw because we remember... Who we talked to when we came out of a cinema we remember who we were sitting next to you know so all of those things are very important and just this idea that somehow uh it's all going to be you know completely downloadable and we're just going to be sort of nailed to our sofas and the whole world will come to us on demand, you know, and I really kind of hate that term on demand, on request would be a lot nicer. (laughs) Uh, But um, I just feel that, you know, we we will end up just kind of becoming robots if we just sort of sit there consuming everything automatically in one place. And sometimes, you know, it makes a difference to actually go somewhere and, you know, even um, get on a plane if you have to.
3: One of the nice things about ha- being at a festival or having something screening at a repertory theater is you have a reason to go see that now, you know, especially if you've made a date to go see it with your friends or something. But when it's just this sort of endless menu, this endless smorgasbord of things to choose from, I did often find myself sort of paralyzed um, by trying to decide what I should watch on a given evening, um, if I if it wasn't a time when I had to watch something particular for work, it was like, you know, the the uh, the torment of too much choice, and you know, having everything from the history of cinema not obviously everything, but a lot available, and not having necessarily any reason. You you lack that feeling of of it being the moment for this particular filmmaker or this particular film, because it's been restored and it's screening and everybody's talking about it. And now it's kind of like, we're all off in our own universes, making our own personal, you know, year long, strange film festival.
0: Our own personal canons. Like I, you know, the reason to go to a film or a repertory screening was because like, I've been waiting to see this for years. And finally I have an, here's my opportunity and I have five days or one day when I can finally see this thing that I've been wanting to see. And that event generates conversation and generates, uh, you know, literature often about this film or filmmaker. And it that creates that sense of community as a result, like it kind of exactly what you've been saying, Imogen. And watching it at home, I'm, I, you know, it's a community of, of one One is the only yeah. It's come on,
1: you're you have a wife and child.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but they don't watch. They don't care. They don't care about actually the baby, the baby will watch anything.
1: I have to say though, about endlessness is like just describes everything we're talking about so perfectly, just the the glut. Uh but you know, we're we're talking about films having a moment, filmmakers having a moment, that being one of the seeming losses of, of this time. And you know, I am Uh, curious Jonathan you're a veteran of festivals you're you're a festival hopper Mm -hmm. I would say in usual circumstances and I'm wondering if you uh, if you remember when you first encountered Roy um, Anderson's work and if you remember there being a particular moment that that uh, when his uh filmmaking you know like very distinctive style became the talk of the the town so to yeah speak. I
2: I do absolutely and I first encountered him uh in 1991 I think it was in uh, a festival in Finland a short film festival at Tampere and there were various selections of actually I don't know, did they just do shorts but I saw various programs of shorts And suddenly, uh, in the middle, I mean, there are a couple of things that I absolutely remember from that year. There was a film by the Estonian animator Prit Pan that just, you know, made me jump out of my skin. And then this very strange film, 15 minutes long or so, um, called World of Glory, which had all these kind of rather sort of grotesque, very unhappy looking people standing around in these sort of tableaux vivants uh compositions in this strange kind of glaucous light that felt like you know it felt like you were watching the world transformed into an aquarium and um I kind of registered this as a sort of UFO but I had no idea you know where he came from or what it was and then years later in fact it was nine years later uh so in 2000 um the ICA in London uh showed his film Songs from the Second Floor. And then it was a revelation because we discovered, you know, his history. We discovered that he'd made um, Swedish Love Stories, first film in 1970, and it was a completely different kind of film. Uh, I, I, I I went on a couple of years later, I saw that uh, in Rotterdam and the film he made after Gileap in 1975. So Giliap is a step towards what he does now, um, much more stylized, but Swedish love story, you know, very lyrical, gentle, bucolic, rural tale of young love in Sweden. And then after Gilliapp, which, which uh, apparently was was a disaster in every sense, a really interesting film, um, he went into advertising and he created this completely unique style of his own, which was to create this series of uh, very, very dark uh, black comic, melancholic comic vignettes for supermarkets, insurance companies, etc. And that over you know 20 years or more became the basis of the Roy Anderson style and you know he created these vignettes in, in, a, in a studio. Uh, which he set up for himself in Stockholm. And then he explores that on a much bigger scale with um, four features all in this kind of vignette style uh, in this very often static, but sometimes extremely elaborate um, style of deadpan humour, which over the four films becomes so deadpan that it's, kind of crossed the line you know I think in his last film uh, a pigeon sat on a branch um, reflecting on existence it was on the border it was about as far as you could go and still be considered humor in some sort (laughs) of you know vestigial way now I think in his new film the humor is is kind of you know less than subliminal it's still there but the humor has become a kind of uh philosophical melt you know it's like is beckett actually funny well yes and no but he's he's probably as close to beckett now in his you know gradual purification of what he does
1: mm. um imogen i'm curious if you also have a first encounter with Anderson's work that you, you remember distinctly?
3: You know, I came to him much later, and I don't think I was really aware of him until a pigeon sat on a branch, but I didn't really delve into his whole career and, and really put it all together and think about him until I came to write about, about Endlessness. So um, although I, I had seen a little of his work before, that was sort of the moment when I feel like his world really opened up to me um, was was when I wrote that piece.
1: And I'm curious what your immediate impressions were. I'm kind of probing because I also obviously Mm -hmm. came to his work pretty recently. And just I was watching about Endlessness yesterday, watched, you know, rewatched some parts of Pigeon today. And it's... I don't know why, but it's making me like question in a fundamental way what narrative cinema is, you know? It's, there's just something so mm-hmm. almost like, yeah, like you were saying, Jonathan, like something so purified about it and so elemental. And yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah, wondering I mean, like what, what when you saw it, like well, how did you place it, I guess?
3: You know, it, it connected with so many things that I was already interested in that, even though it is sort of like from another planet, I also felt like it all it made complete sense. And I also am really fascinated by the way that he's taking away so many of the elements that we think of as essential to cinema. And it's almost like, in a way, he's going back to the very, very beginnings of cinema. You know, there's basically no close-ups, no editing within each scene. Each scene is one take. It's got this kind of proscenium framing. There's very little camera movement. There's this real sort of sense of of staticness. And of course, he's going back to things before cinema as well. I mean, he's very influenced by history painting, tableau vivant, you know, sort of the panorama, these kinds of entertainments that existed before that are almost a kind of proto cinema
0: diorama even something that i
3: di. i mean i used the word diorama i think in the first you feel like these people are in this like in a in a fish tank or something but even the scenes that actually are set outside are actually shot in a studio and the, the you know the sky and and the landscape and everything is painted as in a diorama it's very beautiful it's it's very well done but it's there's no, there's no distance. There's no real space, um, and, you know. But he reminded me of so many visual artists. Um, he reminded me of people like the photographer James Kazebeer, who constructs uh, architectural models on a tabletop and then photographs them as if they were real spaces. Um, you know, it just sort of like set off all of these these these, these connections were popping in my mind. And yet at the same time, there's just no one else who does exactly what he does. And there's no one else who has certainly that, that totally distinctive style that Jonathan, you described really well is, you know, it's very, it's very glum. It's very kind of dour. Everyone is very pasty and um, kind of unhappy looking. And yet he has this Perfect comic timing. And there are moments, I mean, more so in films like You The Living, where it's got this kind of Ingmar Bergman meets Laurel and Hardy kind of vibe, where there's actually a kind of slapstick quality. And then sometimes his humor is incredibly dark and sort of transgressive. He he there's there's a grotesque element, you know, it's a very interesting set of different tones that he manages to work together. And it's all within this very exquisite, you know, exquisitely staged scenes with this very distinctive palette of kind of pale, pearly hues. So I don't know if I've answered your question at all. But um, it, you know, when you discover him, it's, it's, you know, that this is someone completely unique.
2: Can I add to that, that Uh, you know as well as being a master of a tableau vivant i think he's also a cartoonist in a very kind of classic style he has so much in common with you know the new yorker style for example of the single cartoon the single image whether Mm -hmm. it's you know charles adams or more recently Roz chast you know people who you know who who show you one picture and it's funny because it's a picture of absolute human desolation and it's there in one Moment One frozen moment, and he 's very, very good at that, so sometimes you know he does the the very elaborate, expanded scene which which goes on for a while uh, and develops uh, all these extraordinary tableaux, like you know the arrival of the um, eighteenth the century Swedish army in in a modern day bar in the last film, but he also has these single moments like in the new film, uh, a father. Kneeling down to tie his daughter's shoelace mm-hmm. in the pouring rain, and that's the sort of absolutely desolate single cartoon image. You know, it's funny, but it's awful as well, and it's it's such a delicate balance.
0: I'm going to I'm going to push back a little bit and say that I think that I found about Endlessness to be maybe his least desolate film and kind of his most the one that is most open to hope and. And there's a there's a number of moments that are really kind of just simply beautiful and tender. tender. Yeah. Yeah. While also I well also like, you know, there's he's still it's there's he's not saying that everything's fine for sure. But you know, you have the scene with the with the young teenage girls dancing to the jazz song for like the entire scene.
3: The champagne, the the couple drinking champagne, listening to Billy Holiday. Um yeah. I, I definitely agree with you, um, Clint, that I've, I've found there to be a more humane and more sort of tender quality to this. And um, the scene with the woman who gets off the train and she's sitting on the station platform, and it, that is this sort of image of utter desolation in the colors and everybody else leaves and she's alone. And then this man appears and she goes and meets him. And so it, it is like this sense of, of hopefulness. But... I also really liked about this film, the fact that a lot of the vignettes are devoted to something so tiny, like the moment of the the father tying the daughter's shoelace. So there's a scene with a woman whose the heel breaks off her shoe, and that's sort of it. You know, there is it's, it's like he has sort of gone beyond there being a punchline <laughs> to some of these scenes. It's just looking at some minute moment of ordinary life. And yet what's extraordinary is that each of these scenes is crafted with, you know, so much has gone into crafting each of these scenes because he builds the whole set and he, you know, everything is, is designed and built in the studio. And, and so listening about devoting that level of care to then capturing such a kind of minuscule moment of, of something that would ordinarily pass unnoticed that to me was quite moving at times.
2: I think the only other filmmaker who takes so much care in setting up uh, the mise-en-scene for just one single image, to make one single point, is the other Anderson. Chat-tati. Well, no, well in, in his day, Tati, but but now it's the other Anderson, it's Wes Anderson. But I always think that there's a kind of, you know, profligate wastefulness to the way he sets up his shots, whereas with, with Roy Anderson, there's an absolute point to it. But what you were saying, Emission, there's, it's really interesting. Yes, I absolutely agree. There is, there is the possibility of finding hope in all these images, but at the same time, Everything is reversible. Everything has a double value. So the scene with the father and daughter in the rain—yes, it's beautiful and it's tender. He's kneeling down to tie her shoe. On the other hand, it's pouring with rain. Um, the um, the woman waiting on the platform, and, and the voice says, "I saw a woman who thought no one was waiting for her," and she sits down in the realization that no one was there, and then the man arrives and after a moment, she looks up at him and stands up and they embrace. So it's a moment of redemption, you know, she's saved from that desolation. On the other hand, I kind of read that scene as having the possibility that somehow in the few, you know, in half half a minute that it took for him to actually arrive on the platform and, and run up to her and they embrace, in that 30 seconds, Perhaps their relationship was dead. Um, And, like, you know, the perfect image of the reversibility of everything in this film is it's snowing, and a man looks out of the window of a bar and says, It's wonderful. And it is a wonderful moment. The snow is wonderful. It cuts to the steps, and you see the defeated army marching to their death in Siberia and there's snow on the ground. So everything has, you know, snow can be miraculous or it can be the death of everything. So everything has this sort of reversible meaning.
3: Something we should mention, just because you, you just brought this up, is that another new and different thing about this film is that it has the voiceover, um, that he has this woman who introduces many not all of the scenes and always with this formula of I saw a man who or I saw a woman who and there are these kind of obviously deadpan and kind of cryptic little statements but he Anderson said that that he thought of her as Scheherazade as which I thought was fascinating going back to Devika what you said about sort of narrative thinking about narrative cinema and thinking about Scheherazade and the idea of storytelling and what he's doing is very different and yet there is something about this woman endlessly sort of unspooling these observations but certainly i mean we should also talk about the fact that alongside these kind of maybe hopeful or or moments of grace or whatever there you know this film continues his obsession with war you know many of the scenes i would say at least half of them have some kind of direct connection with war, um, with, you know, execution with, you know, people who have been maimed with, you know, the the parents in the graveyard of the, you know, with their son's grave. And so there's always these images. And then there are these images of sort of domestic violence, this, there is an image of, you know, what is the sort of honor killing this father who's killed his daughter. And there's the scene with the man slapping his wife in the, in the fish market and everyone. And of course, he's fascinated by bystanders. The film is full of people who are sort of watching these horrible things happen and are, and are kind of paralyzed and don't know what to do. Um, there's the, the wonderful scene of the man weeping on the streetcar and everyone else just sort of paralyzed with embarrassment as he is sobbing in, in public. Um, so, so yes, I mean, I, I don't mean to suggest that, the, that this film is, is sweetness and light or, or anything like that. I'm definitely on team Blum as well. I felt that
0: I'm, al- I'm alone. Once again, I'm isolated
1: Pollyanna over here, but I just think that there is, there was in watching the film, a kind of the, what you said, Jonathan, it, the reversibility, but also the spareness of the moments
2: mm-hmm.
1: is what I think made me feel strangely bereft. It's almost like not having narrative movement and these lives being reduced to these single moments filled me with a kind of, you know, uh, there's a line in your, in your essay, Imogen, where you say something like, how can there be hope when the horizon is a fake or something? You know, there's like, a sense of these characters obviously being stuck in a world not of their making or like this artificial world from which there is no escape, gray skies on every side. And so something about the abstraction of these lives in these single moments, which quickly can turn or like there are there are these reversibilities, right? right? Um, I think that filled me with a kind of dread or or a very deep sense of melancholy. And I think that's also what I meant when, like the way it made me question narrative cinema, because it made me think of what narrative does in how I process like human existence or the shape of like human life, you know?
3: Right, so of course what this leads me to is the fact that um, I, I wrote the piece and I saw the film during the first weeks uh, of the quarantine, after um, the lockdown, this would be late March, 2020. And it will forever in my mind, I I think be connected with that time. And it felt so much like that time. And it it was exactly sort of what you're talking about. Devika, this idea that of, of the static quality of the people being stuck in these scenes where there's no movement and the idea of endlessness, I mean, part of, of the way the film is because there is not a story and because it's this sort of Scheherazade idea of endlessly spooling these things out, There's no there's no re- reason for it ever to end and there's no necessarily trajectory through it. And, you know, it felt so much like the way life felt in those first days of us all being kind of stuck in our rooms and of course he does a lot with with duration because you just kind of have to sit and watch the scene last as long as it lasts and it often lasts long enough that you feel sort of uncomfortable particularly with the more you know uncomfortable images Um, and so and just that I mean I, I don't know that I thought this as much at the time but throughout the year I've constantly thought about that title about endlessness and how like, is that not the title of the year? <laughs> you know? um, just in terms of how it felt. But I, I think, I don't know, maybe in, the, in that moment, you know, when things worse felt so much more frightening and we felt so isolated in those early days, I may have responded to those moments of sort of tenderness because I kind of needed that. Um, but, you know, Anderson himself said, and I think I quote this, it is important to acknowledge that in the end, no one is a winner. I am not a pessimistic person, but the fact is that there is no hope. So <laughs> I think team glum, you definitely have uh, some support from well,
0: I just read you know, that as not as, an, as a not pessimistic statement, as a very, re- very realistic <laughs>
2: No, I think he totally questions the, the assumption in mainstream narrative, I mean, particularly Hollywood narrative, that a story has to be about, you know, those who win and those who lose. Uh, one of the great things, um, I mean, Imogen, you talked about the role of bystanders in his films. And, and, of course, that reminds us, you know, he's telling us we are all bystanders. We are all bystanders to each other's dramas. And in sitting in the cinema watching his film, we are watching... Those people, we are the bystanders watching those dramas. But the thing is, where you know, someone like Michael Haneker is sort of making us feel uh, involved in his dramas, but ultimately saying, "Shame on you!" You know, you are sitting there there watching that. You should feel very, very mm-hmm. bad about it, very guilty. Um, there is a compassion in Anderson because in any of these scenes, we can probably recognise ourselves. You know, and he is saying, well, you know, this is the human situation and and it involves all of us. Um, And there's an extraordinary scene uh, without giving too much away. There's a very, very banal but incredibly resonant scene, resonant because it's so banal, which is about the man whose car has broken down. And, you know, that's it. It's a man whose car has broken down and he's in this kind of drab, endless plane. But I was thinking about the kind of theology of his films. And, um, you know, I'd love to know what a professional theologian would say about his films, but there's a a strand in this film about a priest who no longer believes in God. And, you know, theologically, I was sort of thinking about this as well, if there is a God then it would be a God who delighted in setting up extremely elaborate mise en scènes, just so that people could find themselves in these absurd situations, you know, that if there is a God, then, you know, it is probably someone like Roy Anderson with a very, very, you know, acidic and ironic and, and tragic sense of humor.
1: I think this is this is going to be our quote <laughs> uh, for this goddess. podcast. <laughs> it is someone like Roy Anderson. Um, I, I I so agree with what you said, Jonathan. Like you can, there's a, there's a scene you can find yourself in. For me, it's the man crying on a bus. Uh, that to me is for the the epitome of living in a metropolis. For me, living in New York means you can cry on the train, and no one will blink an eye, you know, and Mm. there's just, again, someone responds and says, why can't he just be sad at home? Uh, And, you know, I thought that, again, that's such a beautifully tragic moment that, again, seems simple, like a cartoon, but it's really a moment about, you know, private feelings and how how we are or aren't able to share them in like modern public life. And so I I have to say I didn't know that he used to work in ads I found out recently and I thought that was so fascinating so I looked up some of his ads today on YouTube and I found one that he did for an insurance company because he did a bunch of them for an insurance company that was very similar to the scene you were talking about for, in about endlessness with the car And what's interesting is it's you know the ad has a man parked on the side of a road. He opens his car door, goes around to get something. A truck drives past, you know, just blows off the car door, you know, and this man is like, you know, shocked. And then there's just a beat. And then the slogan, the tagline appears, you know, I forget what it is, but it's like accidents can't be prevented, but we'll, you know, we'll whatever, bail you out. or um, And it made me think like, First of all, stylistically, the vignettes in About Endlessness and Pigeon and all, they're so similar to those ads. I watched like five in a row. But the thing is, there isn't that statement that comes after, right? So it's designed in that way, setting up some kind of human folly or weakness or tragedy. But there's usually ads use that to sell you something. This could be you. So buy our product. And I don't know, I thought that was such a, an interesting format to like present that, but to not give you, like not to exploit that, I guess. Yeah,
2: um, I think, you know, the, the message of his films is this could be you, but there is no product on earth that's going to save you, including God.
0: And the, I mean, you also said that like this, it's it's about bystanders and we're the bystanders, but we're also bystanders watching bystanders. Like these people are, are the heroes of, of nobody's story but their own but uh, the other thing that i always think about is uh or that this that his films remind me of are uh i mean they're like mel brooks movies in a way we talk we keep talking about this but each scene is basically just a gag and in this case instead of like an ad there's just no uh there's no sense of payoff there's no release in the same way that like a joke happens there's a gag but it's not necessarily not necessarily with the intention of eliciting a laugh it just kind of creates this release each scene just kind of opens up questions that lead to the next scene that lead to the next scene and so the narrative becomes much more about this accretion of questions rather than any kind of story or any kind of you know change that happens to these characters um that being said there are recurring characters like, such as the priest who loses his faith who's really kind of asshole psychiatrist delivers one of the more hopeful lines i think when he says uh why don't you just be happy for for to be alive i think
1: content not happy content, content which to yeah. me is not yeah. a very happy word <laughs> i yeah. don't
0: know
2: I think the psychiatrist says that to you you know that. You're not getting your money's worth. Right.
3: Right. He also, when he bursts in and says, "What can I do now that I've lost my yeah. faith?" He says, "I'm sorry. I need to catch my bus," <laughs> you know, which, which is also that sort of refusal of. Um, but just to go back, um, I I discovered this too about how he had directed all these commercials, which apparently Ingmar Bergman was a big fan of these TV commercials and. Um, I also watched a bunch of them uh, online. Um, But when Songs from the Second Floor came out that first feature, um, Roger Ebert wrote something wonderful about how he had, after he had, you know, he'd made all this money, the money that he made making these commercials was what allowed him to build his studio in Stockholm where he makes the film. And he said, you know, after taking all this money from, uh, you know, Corporations, he he now you know bit off the hand that fed him and chewed it thoughtfully and spit it out and trampled on it. Um, and that first film in particular has some really extremely biting satire of commercialism. And so it's he he does take these techniques that he uses and then inverts them in every possible way, um, including you know questioning the whole idea of, of selling things and yes, the the idea that um, some kind of product or service can, can solve our problems.
1: So one thing like from everything we've been talking about is making me wonder, you know, is he a humanist artist at the end of the day? I mean, are these all just existential questions or is there historical, cultural, political? I mean, I'm sure there are specificities that you know, don't translate to me. I know that there's some, obviously there are historical, plenty historical references and tableaus. Pigeon has a particular scene that Imogen you referenced in your essay um, with, I mean, very brutal scene. I would say more brutal than, you know, I would expect given the other images in, in just the whole sequence of African slaves being led into the circular structure and then basically being roasted alive to create some kind of musical entertainment for very old, uh, extremely pale you know, European guests. And I was struck by those and obviously also the theological moments in the new film. I, but I just wondered, is it, does it kind of add to some, something more than existentialism or, or just like humanist commentary is, do you sense something deeper uh, there in terms of the critique?
0: or maybe not deeper, broader.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know that Imogen, you talked a little bit about Sweden's experience of the war um, and how that maybe costs a sort of call over the world that, that he's contriving
3: in these films. But yes, which was, I mean, that, this was, was something I actually came across that someone else had written. That was not, a, not an original thought of my own, but it was a reference to Sweden's neutrality during the war being possibly connected to this strange sort of neutrality that we've been talking about with the bystanders who just stand by and watch and it's unclear sort of what they feel or why they're not taking any kind of action. Um, I mean, the films are, are, as you say, full of historical references, although also just a lot of art historical references and yet they do feel like they're principally about some kind of universal existentialist questions about the human condition. I mean, um, which, which sounds very, <laughs> very trite, but I think um, it's hard to get around the idea that he is trying to say something about the human condition.
0: I read that the scene in uh, Pigeon that you referenced, Devika, as, first of all, it's a dream sequence. Of this salesman who's selling these like crappy vampire <laughs> teeth, uh, who's a great character, but I read that as like his the as his, his um, complicity in kind of this global system of this you know disaster, this disastrous global system of exploitation and pain, and is the impossibility of this guy who just wants to quote make people happy and make or help people have fun. Right. Um, he's just, he's tortured by this. I Um, was
2: very disturbed when I saw that scene and mm. it struck me somehow as being out of keeping with the tone of, uh, some of his other moments of horror, including, you know, even those scenes that, that allude to the Holocaust, um, and I wondered whether there was a kind of overstatement there. But, but that scene is, is very much a scream, you know, and it is a vision of hell. And it's interesting that uh, for years his, his dream project, which he was talking about making, was an adaptation of uh, Céline's possibly unfilmable novel, Journey to the End of Night. And the thing about Céline is, you know, one of the great... 20th century writers, visionaries, and modernists, but an anti-Semite and you know a Nazi sympathizer and someone coming from you know the most um, inadmissible area of right-wing thought uh, and and you know hatred of of the world and yet um, someone who whose kind of authentic vision of um, of the human condition as being a kind of hell is in- incredibly fertile and incredibly resonant and, and has inspired you know, many writers, and many filmmakers and uh, you know, is sort of a great example of someone whose worldview you cannot possibly accept, but whose who's vision as a writer um, is very hard not to be fascinated by. And you can see, I think this is a sort of a genuine sort of Selenian moment where um this this sort of seemingly mild thinker producing these these kind of you know scenes of gentle melancholy will suddenly you know reveal you know how how extreme and how troubling uh and how despairing his his thought can be and it's interesting that it should be in the form of a dream or a nightmare because it's the nightmare it's the unconscious that that you know, reveals uh, the otherwise um, unrepresentable reality.
3: But uh, yes, it's also interesting though, that that scene, which is certainly the most horrifying in, in in any of his films, is also presented as this idea of an entertainment. You know, this, this atrocity is being perpetrated as this entertainment for this, you know, well-dressed kind of de- crowd of decrepit colonial, audience, you know, and, uh, you know, thinking about even, um, uh, Clint, you talked about the the salesmen of these novelty products, you know, who, who say they want to help people have fun. I feel like there's something also where he's constantly kind of questioning what, questioning entertainment and this idea of what it means to produce something with the aim of of entertaining people,
0: the salesmen say uh, always say they work in entertainment. That's their field, right? They're in entertainment. Go ahead.
2: But I think that's what allies him with, uh, you know, as you pointed out in your piece, uh, Imogen. You know, painters like Bruegel, mm-hmm. because when Bruegel or Bosch represent hell, um, it's also a carnival. Right. You know, it is entertaining right. and it's it's a spectacle and it's a phantasmagoria, and there is something you know, the more nightmarish their visions are, the more entertaining they are, because they're, you know, much more uh, fascinating than, and joyous than representations of earthly earthly or or celestial paradise.
1: I was just thinking, I mean, that scene almost like weirdly makes me think of that scene in The Square by Ruben Osland, you know, where it, there's that art party. There's like this gala or something and um, an actor is basically sort of does this like very unsettling performance of an ape and uh, which is also a critique of you know what constitutes art, what constitutes entertainment and almost like in in this film and just Roy Anderson's work in general is taking that sort of uh, satire but again like making it very elemental and like universalizing it in some way or making it more existential than about a particular milieu and there are elements of provocation in there I mean I'm I'm not sure I'm like very convinced by the scene that we've been talking about you know I think that it's the kind of there is a kind of self-flagellation to it you know and that's a little bit pathetic Uh, I think that's why it works as a dream scene but there is a kind of and I think that that aligns with what Imogen you wrote and also we're just saying about, you know, the connection with Sweden's neutrality and non-involvement. Then there's the Catholic guilt aspect of it all. And there's just something um, self-loathing that can can grate in scenes like that, I think. But that also is just, it's, I, I don't know, it's so, sustained with such discipline like that you have to sort of marvel at it too i mean it's it's done with so much discipline and craft
0: but yeah at the beginning of that scene i remembered it feeling that way and feeling like this is just like provocative for the sake of being provocative almost like he's just trying to like shock me now
3: yeah scene in uh I think it's songs from the second floor with the man flinging all these crucifixes on, he's in a junkyard and he's, this is one of these sort of satires of of commercialism. You know, he's, he's tried to make money by selling these crucifixes and they haven't sold. And he's just, you know, angrily flinging them into into the garbage, you know, and you have to feel like that this is just a desire to sort of push, push people's Buttons and do something that is, you know, blasphemous. And um, I, I did feel that a bit too about the scene. Like he's there's a desire to shock.
2: It's perhaps the only moment in his films where I think he approaches the obscene because it is it is horrifying and it's unthinkable. Um, but actually, it's it's really interesting. This also makes me think. You know, we 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 always sort of use the term grotesque about his world and about his people. But I think this is, you know, more and more, and it's very visible in this film, it feels as if he is letting, you know, ordinary, vulnerable, let's say realistic human beings into the snow globe. I think you say snow globe in your piece, the snow globe of the grotesque. Mm -hmm. And it's as if somehow people have kind of wandered into the aquarium. You mean in a bad it, uh, in in the Angeles. yeah, that people have wandered into the aquarium and are, are sort of disrupting it with their humanness, and particularly thinking mm-hmm. about the scene of the three girls dancing because they're not made up like those usual kind of tired, mm-hmm. weary, corpse-like, ghost-like Anderson figures. They're they're three young women who've who've walked in and they exude life and they dance, you know, like the woman sitting in the bar smiling because she loves champagne, you know, and and Mm. there are these sort of, these new A little
1: too much though. (laughs) She likes champagne a little too much. And that for me was the slightly tragic.
2: Well, it says so much, you know, I'm not quite sure what what the Swedish actually means, but Uh, the subtitle in the version I saw said so much. And, and i like i i heard the voice over saying that with a sort of i i heard the pleasure that she loves champagne so much you know why not why not
1: i'm curious i mean does anyone um know what's the deal with the white cast i've been you know the the kind of powdery faces that are like almost corpse like uh i was trying to see if i could find an interview or something where um where he clarifies that. I don't know if if either of you have come across that or have your own take. It's such a, I mean, if I were to point to a visual technique that fills me with the most um, like melancholy in, you know, his filmography it's that the faces are robbed of color in a way that yeah makes them look like corpses or make them look I don't know frozen or dried out in some way it's that to me is so unsettling and I, yeah. I wonder what that flattening is that a painterly thing
2: I think they feel like they've been exhumed almost and it's very odd because there is this quality of of sort of you know, necrotic f- flesh, but it's the same colour as their clothes. You know, I was looking at a man's orange tie, but it's not the sort of orange you'd wear. It's like o- orange, the same as his, you know, the same tones as his flesh. Actually, there's a really interesting thing, because uh, when the young couple are talking about, you know, energy uh, that cannot be destroyed and that and that lasts forever, I suddenly realised that... Um, the decor and the bodies were of the same colour, that everything was this kind of greeny, pallid beige, and it was almost as if their skin was made of the same material as the walls, and the walls could have been made of their skin. So it's almost like, you know, all the energy in the universe is there to create matter, but just, you know, just sort of alive enough to kind of, Give it form, but not actually real life. Everything's kind of, it's almost as if the entire universe, including the people, is made of this rather sort of insipid clay. It's a very, very unnerving effect.
3: And that is the scene where they're talking about this, the idea that, um, you know, energy can't be created or destroyed and that you will come back in some other form. And so um, that's a really interesting observation. I guess I. I I mean, I have not heard him speak about why he does this. I I think I compare them to mushrooms. It's this kind of mushroom flesh Um, (laughs) as if they have never seen the light of day, which also goes with this sense of them being in snow globes or being in dioramas, all these kinds of, um, or, you know, people who've been indoors for a year and and you're seeing them on a Zoom, you know, (laughs) little Zoom square. but I guess my-
0: Hey, hold on a minute.
3: <laughs> it just suddenly occurred to me as I was looking at us in our little <laughs> rectangles that, that there's something about that too with these kind of vignettes. But anyway, you can cut that out. Um, I mostly just saw it as there is such a unified palette in, in the films. Um, all of the colors have this sort of drained- you know they're 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 like drained of of life, drained of, of juice, and um, it just struck me as yes, like some painters have a, a distinct palette. I mean, I I think of it like the Danish painter Wilhelm Hammershoy, who everything is in this kind of you know gray and beige and and faded green and this sort of cold northern light. Um, so I see it. Clearly, the people blend in with their surroundings, but but it also ob- obviously kind of enhances the whole tone of of that we've been talking about throughout this. That there is something um, they're either you know people who've been dwelling underground or they're, you know
0: right. Well, it's yeah, dehumanizing, yes. I think, and it's mm-hmm. or partially dehumanizing and so you have these kind of puppet like figures who aren't entirely you you don't identify with them yeah
1: yeah, okay.
0: yeah you don't identify with them immediately as you would somebody yeah. who you they're alien a little bit for the viewer yeah.
2: and famously you know he he casts people that he sees in the street or in the supermarket and he goes up to them and says you know i, I think he'd be great in one of my films and Which just imagine film. yeah and imagine if someone came up to you if roy anderson came up to you and said you know you'd look great in one of my films You thought oh my god do i look that bad i don't he know might seek seen... us
0: out after imogen's description <laughs> but, but we might check your email
2: have you seen the uh, the documentary about him, uh, being a human person? Which no. kind of is is a sort of companion piece to, the, to this film. So it's by, um, it's actually, you know, produced by his company. Uh, I think he may even be uh, executive producer and it's by uh, someone called Fred Scott and it's called Being a Human Person. And it's about sort of Anderson as a sort of representative of humanity, but it's a complete sort of warts and all depiction. I mean, it's really fascinating. Mm because it's about his career, but it's not sort of, you know, it's not a a, a kind of uh, puff piece for him. Um, and it talks about his alcohol problems, and it talks about, it shows his staff at his, his studio saying, oh, gosh, you know, we're really worried about him. You know, he's been in a bad way before, and, you know, we hope he pulls through this time. And, you know, you see him, and he's... Um, you know, he's now sort of somewhat frail, and he he has problems walking by by the end of the film. In fact, I saw him uh, do a, do a presentation of his film uh, a couple of years ago in Seville, and it, when it was a sort of work in progress, and you know, he was not, he didn't seem you know very healthy at that point. But you see in, in this film that he's very much you know we're not sort of we're not building him up as some kind of Kubrickian. You know, von Trier, like you know, larger than life. You know, he's he's a, a sort of elderly, rather stout, quiet guy called Roy, who has just, you know, built this whole world for himself. And I mean, there are very few examples. I've I've rarely seen uh, depictions of you know celebrated auteurs, especially you know that that they may have executive produced themselves, that that are are this you know, demystifying, you know, and if, if, if you saw something like that about Von Trier, you'd think, oh, he's pulling all the strings. I didn't get that sense at all here. I mean, I think he seems to be, you know, as uh, what, well, you know, obviously, he has this kind of extraordinary confidence in what he does. But at the same time, one, one does get this sense of absolute kind of ordinariness and, and, and humility and, and humanity. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've met him and interviewed him on occasion, and he comes across as a very sort of self-deprecating character. It's a, it's a fascinating film and very wor- well, worth seeking out if you can see it.
1: I mean, I think, you know, I, I, definitely will seek it out. I think that what we were saying at the start of the discussion, um, I mean, he puts a lot of effort and time into these films, into these uh, constructions, right? Like he's building these. um, I spoke to him while he was working on this film for Film Comment, and he had shared some sketches that he was working off of. And the sketches were like actual pieces of art, you know, so every single thing is So precise, and he doesn't need to do this. I mean, the ruined city in the Chagall recreation doesn't have to be made of styrofoam, right? I don't think I could have told, like, in a part if it was like, I don't know, digital or like something else. Um, But that everything is constructed in this interior world. I think that it's interesting that despite that, you don't get a sense of hubris. You don't get a sense of like. You have directors who go to these great lengths because of like some sense of cinematic or artistic purity. Um you don't get that from his films, yeah, you know. It doesn't, humility doesn't feel like this is made. Yeah, the, the, is it's real. not Comes to make a point. Films. Exactly. It's not to make a point. Um, you know, it doesn't feel masturbatory, you know. It really there's something very like genuine and painterly about it, you know. Why would why does a painter like um, labor over each stroke, to me, there's that comes through. And I think that's what maybe even comes through as a kind of hope and joy. There is a great love that goes into the artistry that feels very, very genuine.
0: Yeah. And as and as hopeless as many of these characters situations are, I don't think you ever feel like the filmmaker or the film is dismissing them in any way or is dismissive of their experience maybe the psychiatrist who's who has to catch the bus but well thank you guys both so much for joining and uh we really enjoyed talking to you
1: i have to say i i don't know i i wanted to demystify or anderson for myself my experience with anderson for myself and this chat really helped me
2: do yeah that, so. yeah and
1: thank you very much thank you